Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. What a year this has been. Man, I truly hope you're navigating the ups and downs with grace and finding the silver linings to focus on. I know it's hard. We want to take a minute to say how grateful we are to healthcare and frontline workers all over the world and to our donors and sponsors for helping us stay afloat. And most of all, to you, our listeners, for giving us a reason to do this work that we find so meaningful. We're glad that in a turbulent year like 2020, we were still able to bring so many wonderful creative voices to you on Clever. As we approach the end of the year, we wanted to share some of our favorite moments. In putting this together, we weren't going for any particular themes, but some emerged anyway. We're sharing moments about discovering, believing in, and being true to your creative self. The importance of building the design community with true diversity. And remembering that there are no problems, no matter how complex and pervasive, that design and creativity can't help solve. So here you are. It's like we baked you a basket of holiday cookies made of meaningful moments and optimistic sound bites. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. I was 45 when I opened up Moss, the store. So I was already 45 years old. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I I just wanted to express myself, okay? Which is why I called it Moss and not Moss 20th century design, not anything like that. I just called it Moss because I couldn't make a mistake that way. Like, if I woke up and I liked cuckoo clocks, then I would buy all those Google clocks. And that's because I couldn't go wrong because I would always be on brand because the brand was me. Right, right. And I knew that I would keep changing because I was 45 and I've already gone through so many changes. So I felt, why don't I just have that where I won't go wrong if I, if I just follow my own heart, you know? And so I, it was very personal. I thought... Today, I'll jump out, I'll go look at something, and then if I love it, I'll do only that compulsively. Like, I, I don't, there's no balance. I, I didn't care. I didn't want to have any balance. I didn't want to, I told people, you know, I'm not the UN gift shop. I'm like, my, I don't have to balance anything. And people would complain, you don't have enough women working here. You don't have anything from Panama. You don't have anything made out of this material, you know, that, and I say, whoa, it's called moss. It's like follows what I am, am compulsively interested in or not. 
It's not a normal store, and it's, it's all at my risk. I'm doing it myself. So that's what you get. And that, because I, I, I just, that was where I was at that point in my life. And um, it was, I, you know, what I think, and I, I built it on the, on the theater, a theatrical metaphor, which was, I felt that things at that time needed to be elevated, theatricalized, which people, a lot of people shot down, you know, but I said, they said, when you get it home, it doesn't look like it did in the store. Fair enough. But I felt that it, it wasn't about that. What it was about was me really showing you and you understanding and, and seeing what the intent was about the subject, what this person who designed it was about. Mm-hmm. And that was, was what I was interested in. So, it's like you're seeing the objects as characters. Yes. Well, I'm seeing them as souvenirs of people. So, so somebody made a chair, okay? Well, I never had a chair department because, like everybody else did, because I thought, well, nobody needs me. What's my contribution to tell you that it's, this is a chair in case you make a mistake and think it's a lamb? <laughs> like, you know, what, what, and what am I going to do? What am I here for? Just mm-hmm. to be the guy between you and the chair unless you give me $500? So what I felt was what I would do is contribute something. That's how egotistical I was. So I felt that I would show you, the, I would find the hidden grief if there was one that a designer buried for free inside of this chair. Mm-hmm. And then I would talk about that, not about it being a chair. So maybe I would put it in a case with a fruit bowl and a candlestick because they were all made out of polished aluminum or because they were all red, you know? So I would, I would get off of the, of, I, would, I would focus on something that you maybe wouldn't have known to look for because it's not in most people's interests most merchants interest to do that. That's what kind of worked much to my surprise. I hadn't thought about it, but because that's of course very endearing, makes one very endearing to a designer, mm-hmm. you know, and a manufacturer. I, I'm compulsive. You know, I, I went in there every day, very early in the morning. I would clean. Well, at, at the beginning, it was my only employee and I would clean everything. I would sweep Green Street, I would clean the street. I would repaint the store every week. Mm. And even to the last day that we were open, like 18 years later, you know, people would come in and say, did you just open? Because to me, it was like every day was opening night. Every day was the first day. That was because that's who I am. Like, that was, that was just my compulsion. And it was good for business because nobody else would be willing to do that. Like, not a lot of people... It was crazy, you know, but, but uh, it suited me. I'm su- continue to be surprised that, first of all, it, it had some effect on people because I wasn't really aware of it at the time. I would come home from a market or something and I'd say to Franklin, I can't believe it, you know, I met this person and they heard of us. And it was like, he would go, well, yeah. I wasn't really conscious of that I ever. I was like, I can't believe that people, you know, look who came in, I can't believe it. It was like really weird. What was so dissatisfying about the ad agency job? Like, where was it leaving you cold? So for me, I was super grateful to have the job. It was, it was in all aspects, my dream job um, until I was in there for a couple months. And I think I was just a bright eyed, bushy tailed, like recent grad who 
thought that working at an agency was going to be like being in ad school, which is totally not the case. You know, in ad school, you can make any ad you want for any brand and like put it in your portfolio. For me, the biggest dissatisfaction was the fact that we were working hard on these pitches or working on campaigns and they would get killed by the client and never see the light of day. And I just had a little bit of frustration. I didn't feel like I was providing any value. I remember eight months into the job, we even went to our uh, executive creative director and we were like, we haven't sold any work through. Are we going to get fired? Like, are we doing a bad job? And he was like, no, you guys are doing a good job. Like, shit happens. You know, that's just how the agency is. The nature of the business. Mm -hmm. And like, you have to have a thick skin and like, you'll sell work through eventually. Don't worry. And I personally was just feeling disheartened. I think it was also because it was in such a stark contrast to here I am putting in 12 hours a day at the agency, not selling any work through or any of it seeing the light of day. I can't tell anyone I did that because it's not in the wild. Whereas I was spending maybe 12 hours a week working on lettering and daily dishonesty and anything I made, I had full creative control over and could also publish. And so I had this free flow of creativity and being able to share it and get that satisfaction out of it being in the wild that my ad job wasn't giving me. And so I think I just, there was a moment where I took a step back and I was like, wait a second, this, this one feels a lot better. And like, what if I just switched the numbers and like was working on lettering 12 hours a day? What would that look like? And so that started to get the wheels turning of like, well, maybe I could do my own thing. Uh, and so it wasn't, it wasn't the worst job. It was just, I guess, relative to what was going on, I had this like little shimmer of like something else happening. And well, the way you're <laughs> illustrating it for me, I'm seeing like one road is all red lights. You're not getting anywhere. You're stuck in traffic and the energy is all jammed yes, up. Traffic is a great way to put it. It was out of my control. What was yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other one, it's like you're zipping through mm-hmm. the lights are turning green. People are <laughs> waving to you. They're like, Hey, Lauren, good to see you today. Yeah. And you're like, this is so much better. <laughs> totally. That's exactly. That's such a great analogy. So, but you probably had to figure out within yourself if you could hang with the idea of building your own business. I mean, at that point, you were probably thinking a freelance kind of career. Yeah, I had seen, you know, Jessica Hish, Jan Antonimachi, John Contino do their thing being okay. type focused. And so there was See, existence. Models. There was existence of that being a thing. Did you have to pitch your parents on the idea? <laughs> I remember calling my dad when I had made the decision that I wanted to leave. I called my dad and I was like, I did that thing where I was like, hey, dad, I'm about to say something and you promise you won't get mad, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a terrible thing to preface a conversation it's with. Just like, I can feel him just like zipping up, just tensing. <laughs> exactly. Um, it was scary because you, even if, when you see other people doing the thing you want to do and you're like, okay, well, there's obviously market demand. There's other people paving the way. When you think of it through the lens of yourself doing it, it's terrifying. And me being a really risk averse person, I was weighing out these, I'm not super happy at my job, but it is a job and it's consistent and I get paid. Am I throwing away four years of studying advertising? Like, what what does it all mean? And what if this lettering thing doesn't work out? Um, You know, will people think I'm a quitter or a fool or all this stuff? And I had the realization that, okay, I'm 23 years old. And the difference between getting another ad job at 24 versus 23 is pretty negligible. Like the one thing I hear from older creatives and people who have more experience is age is like being young is such a gift in terms of how you can recover. It's so much easier to recover. It's kind of like how people say like, 
you know, when you have a longer time horizon for your investments, you can be riskier. And that's mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. there are things like target funds that like get less risky as you get older so you can retire in peace. And so you can think about it, if anyone's listening right now and you're like 21 or 22, not to say that if you're 35, you shouldn't follow your dreams, but especially if you were that you are the age that I was when I made my jump, you really have very little to lose. You will figure it out. Uh, and so I realized that if I give this thing a shot and it doesn't work out and I burn through, you know, more savings than I'm comfortable with, okay, then maybe I move back in with my parents. Okay, that's not great. And then if I still can't make it doing lettering, I'll just go back and get another ad job. I still have the resume. Um, it's not my first choice, but it wouldn't be the worst thing. When people think about failing at following their dreams or being freelance, they think of like, going back to square one and having to start from scratch, but you still have all the tools in your tool belt at your disposal. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Whenever I'm in a room with web professionals, I hear a lot of shop talk about Wix Studio. Wix Studio is beloved by both designers and developers because it gives them the quality and flexibility to do exceptional work efficiently so they can do what they do best without the grind and deliver projects on time. Designers love Wix Studio because it combines pure web design with maximum productivity. With intuitive layout tools, designers can create unique layouts with an intuitive grid that allows them to add emphasis and standout style. And they can save entire custom site templates, text themes, color palettes, and components to use them time and again. And developers love Wix Studio because it gives them the flexibility and speed they need to take a wide range of projects end-to-end with code-level control over the front-end and back-end. Devs can either use Wix-made or third-party APIs. Plus, they can work online in a VS code-based IDE or code locally and push changes via GitHub. I may not be an expert in website creation, but I do know a lot about how to design and build, and there is nothing more exciting to the creative process than a well-stocked toolkit that helps me do my best work. To learn more, go to Wix Studio or simply click on the Clever Resources link in the description. I had a teacher who really got me to move to New York. Uh, His name is Stanislaw Zagorski. He was a Polish illustrator, and he got me interested in typography. And I owe 
so much of my career to him because he he saw that I was struggling with this sort of organization of the Swiss modern style that most people were working with in the time, which was the typeface Helvetica, and you rubbed it down in press type, and mine never looked right. It was, they didn't go with the artwork that I made, and they were somewhat messy. And he said to me, illustrate the type. And when I heard those words, I started to understand that type had spirit and form, and that I could take typography in in a much more meaningful direction than I had been doing, and it was great. And then now I'm obsessive about it, but but he was <laughs> he was the founding father. Okay, that's nice to he turned on the light bulb and yep, that <laughs> absolutely he turned on the light bulb, and uh, he he took me to New York and gave me lists of people to see for jobs. That he knew because wow. he worked there. He was an illustrator. He was actually he'd done the cover for Cream the, the, band, the band, okay, in, in the in the sixties. And I was in art school, and my teacher had done yeah that's a best selling album that was kind of amazing. It was Wheels of Fire, a silver album he'd done. It was gorgeous. Um, we were all so proud. That was big. Yeah. So you moved to New York City. Were your parents sort of like see you later? Were you? I, I remember I told my mother uh, I was going to move to New York, and she said, oh, oh, Paula, don't do anything like that. That sounds like it takes talent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of those. One of those. All right. Well, you did later, it anyway. Later, she was proud. You, you, were, you weren't <laughs> looking for her validation necessarily at this point. Well, I, I knew what I wanted to do, and uh, it was different from what my my family had a vision for me and that I think my mother wanted me to be a school teacher because she thought it was safe. She thought it was what I was doing was risky. My, our lifestyles were very different and that was very rough in those days. I think later they came to accept it. My mother said that she never knew anybody who was ever a graphic designer and then another generation of children grew up and there were many graphic designers. It became a, you know, a much more popular profession. So I think that they had reasonable fears. I mean, I don't think they were wrong necessarily. Yeah, no, they were just I... wrong about. They were just wrong for me. <laughs> right. So I understand when you landed in New York City, you you had a couple of jobs before landing at CBS, and you first landed at CBS in the ad department. Right. Is that correct. That's correct. Okay. Which you didn't find that to be a prestigious position. Well, I actually loved CBS Records when I first got there because there are all kinds of people in the department who were sort of my age and oh. some of whom I'm still in touch with. Oh, that's nice. Uh, and they were young designers and I was in a group with them. So it was fun. And we had this hideous boss that we hated and we thought he was a jerk and made fun of him and laughed about him all the time. So you galvanized around your hatred. Totally. Of the totally. Boss. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like socially a pretty exciting place to be. It was totally great. Um, I used to make ads and I, I learned everything I know about politics from being in that advertising department. For example, I learned about the hierarchy of corporate approvals. Like I would make ads for Cashbox. I had a, a, a partner who was a copywriter named Marty Picar that I worked with, who I really liked, and he was funny. We made good ads together, and uh, we would we would draft an ad on Monday, and we'd make a layout on it, and it would be routed around the company. And Cashbox magazine closed on Wednesday, mm-hmm. and that so that you had a, the ad had to be approved by. Uh, it was Wednesday late in the day. It had to be approved by Wednesday morning. So 
that the ad would run, route around to the first person who would make some comment on it and come back for a revision. And then would route around and he, they would approve it and go to the next person. They would reject it or do something else with it or say this sucks or whatever they'd write on it and would come back for, and this thing would happen. Monday would be gone and then it would be Tuesday. We'd go through the same process again. And then whatever we sent up Wednesday morning went <laughs> because that, <laughs> that was the day the ad closed. So I just realized don't show anything till Wednesday morning. The work will be better because you can save the good work you do and just not let it circulate around for the. Oh, very astute. <laughs> You're working the system. I figured the system. Yeah, so, yeah. No, I started to understand how politics worked. Help us understand what compelled you to start this business, why you named it Open Box, what's the driving mission, and, and what kind of work do you do, and how does it play out there? Yeah, yeah. 2008, 2009 was a big transition year globally. Before COVID-19, we would have been looking at that as a, a real marker of time to say, we're, you know, a lot of things changed. And so Open Box for me was a new iteration of something that I've been doing all my life. And it's taking the principles of design, uh, which is really rooted in understanding how humans um, respond to their environment around them whether that's through an object, a chair that you're sitting in, um, mm. to a service. To me, the core idea of design thinking is around understanding the human element, people-centered design, the aspects of who we are. And I felt like during that time period, it we were all going through so many different changes. Um, I've already been touching design in many different ways, but I'd never just pulled it all together to actually – uh, do something as formal as being more of a consultant with it and start a firm named Open Box um, to do that. And so in 2009, that's when I started Open Box. The name comes from a gentleman by the name of Henry Box Brown. He was a former slave that uh, put himself in a box and mailed himself to freedom, crossing the Dixie Line to go into Philadelphia and it's so ingenious. Aspect. It's such yeah. a great story. Yeah, no, it's, it's this idea of in order to save yourself, sometimes you have to use and leverage the very thing that's oppressing you to actually free yourself. And for me, Open Box is all about leveraging the things that I've gone through personally, what we've all gone through, using the framework of design, design thinking to uncover new insights, to free ourselves, to create new opportunities. I mean, Henry Box, to, to what you're doing there, it's a lot of it is understanding the systems and the structural integrity of those systems and how to, I don't want to say work loopholes, but it's, it's leverage them. And you can yeah, do that absolutely. when you understand them. And then sometimes, right. you know, they need to be undermined, which is, mm -hmm. you can do that more strategically when you understand how they work, too. That's right. Tell me a little bit more about Open Docs and why you felt storytelling in that medium was a, was an important part. Storytelling is so important in everything that we do. So even on the consulting side, it is definitely an important part for us to make sure that the insights that we're providing are real stories. And to amplify that is to leverage documentary films. And so when we were in South Africa, I spent you know, three and a half years going back and forth I was doing a lot of ethnography work. Uh, you could call it film work and, and research, but it was truly getting to know the people who live there. 
and mm-hmm. understanding what they're going through. And then we're using film as an output to express that. But it's truly storytelling and a lot of ethnography work. And so we're leveraging design as a way to also do our films and understanding some of those hidden stories that people may not know about is, is very exciting for us. And also when people watch our films, one thing that I always say is that for us, it's not about doing a film to answer questions. We're not here to like to inform. We're here to provoke. And what I love most is that if someone leaves our film, we're hoping that we provoke them to ask more questions versus mm-hmm. us answering questions. I feel it. It's sort of like turning a light on and then the person sees a lot of information that they weren't seeing before. And it just sets them on a a course of discovery and question asking. Here we are having this conversation. It's a, it's a platform for storytelling. And I also believe in that wholeheartedly. I feel like it's also a bridge. You said in the beginning, you said you were a catalyst for creating change in communities. I think storytelling offers that sort of narrative bridge to relate to the humanity of the communities and the people at the center of those stories. No, absolutely. Everything that we're going through right now as a society is being pushed up against the fact that people want to express themselves. People want to feel free. People want to feel heard. People want to matter. And what's happening is that there's only one side of the story that's being told. Even when the other side is being told, it is a distorted story that it does not speak to the truth. And so for me, being a catalyst for building communities is about making sure that everyone gets to speak their truth. Film is one way of doing that. Design thinking and working with communities to help inform how their neighborhoods look whether it's through urban planning or through development is very, very important because buildings tell stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Our streets tell stories. Our restaurants tell stories. Everyone should have the right to tell their story. In the beginning, it was pretty rough and bumpy because clients were not used to pay for design They just didn't get it. They didn't get why they would pay for something that was not tangible. So we had to teach them and explain every time we were doing exactly what they couldn't do and what a carpenter couldn't do. It was creating something. Some clients started to understand it, but they also wanted the finished product. Mm Mm-hmm. So we used our workshop a lot to do that. It didn't make sense to them to have just an idea on paper that they couldn't use. They really didn't feel like they could go to a carpentry workshop or to a metal worker and explain them what they wanted to do, even though sometimes they tried They really needed you to follow that all the way through the production phase. Yes, and it's still that way most of the time. So we don't have the workshop anymore, but we do finish the whole project. We take our artisans and we explain the project and we go through prototyping process with them 
and we make changes with them and we show them to the client and it's a back and forth thing. And we're still doing it the same way we began doing it because the client just feels like it's necessary. The clients did start understanding why they had to pay for our services because Mm -hmm. we kept on quoting our services and right (laughs) (laughs) they're like wait what's this what's this charge and you're like well here's all the expertise and thinking and prototyping and model making and (laughs) refining that goes into the before we actually go to the carpenter and say will you please make this exactly one thing harry and i are very much involved in here is in educating people about design in general. We don't want to be arrogant or that we know more than the client. We just want for people to understand and feel and live design as it's supposed to be because there's so much talent in El Salvador. And all those generations, those new generations of designers we want for them to have clear path. Since Harry and I began our studio, we created for us this web of artisans and workers in different materials and techniques that have been close to us. I mean, working with us for 12 or 15 years already. And also new generations of of designers have been doing the same thing. And we have shared also uh, most of our contacts. So these artisans have had the opportunity to work with other designers. It's a fascinating thing that the artisans are starting to recognize design as an element that gives them work. I mean, they recognize Contempo as something important happening and they know what kind of quality or the style of the products that are shown during that contest. It's very important for us to create a platform of interaction within designers and artisans, but also to connect that thing happening, that interaction happening to all the people that are aware of the economic movements of the country, let's say. Like, for example, uh, tourism is becoming a big part of incomes in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. Design is relating to tourism more and more every day through the artisans also. So there's like a, a, a cycle of activities, like a chain of value that's working to make El Salvador a better place. But we would love for people that have the power to make changes in the country and for people that not only own big companies, but that have power to understand that design is not only about creating nice, good-looking products or designing a nice place to live in, but it's a tool that allows 
to create more income to people and therefore to the country. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. So it was about five years into lunch. It was 2013 when I first got the idea to do Revision Path. And it stemmed from an earlier project of mine that I did called the Black Weblog Awards that I started in 2005. And it was the first internet awards that kind of focused on Black bloggers and podcasters and video bloggers. And I did that from 2005 to 2011, right around my 30th birthday, I sold it. And then I kind of still had the idea to do some kind of big project like this that I knew focused on like Black creativity online. Mm Because I was a designer, I knew friends that were designers, and I just felt like they were not getting any kind of recognition for the work that they were doing. I certainly didn't feel like I was getting recognition for the work that I was doing. Like, no one was talking to us. We weren't reflected in design media at all. Like, so I wanted to make a platform to allow us to at least have that opportunity to talk about ourselves for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I started Revision Path is just kind of out of that idea, out of that notion. I wanted to do long form interviews, very similar to the great discontent or something like that, where you had these long, deep 2000 plus word interviews on people. And that was good, but it was just hard to get all of that in one sitting from a lot of folks. Also, Mm -hmm. nobody knew who the hell I was. So I would reach out to people and say, Hey, my name is Maurice Sherry and I'm doing this, that, and the third. And they're like, who are you? Why, why would I talk to you? You know, well, in 2013, nobody even knows what a podcast is yet. Right. Really. Exactly. I mean, it's still really new. And so the technology was probably difficult. And were you doing in-person interviews or remote recording? Uh, yeah, they were all remote. Yeah. Okay. So, man, yeah. you really are a pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> so there, was a, there were a lot of no. I mean, there were some yeses, thankfully. But there were definitely a lot of no's in those first, I'd say, maybe two years or so because people were just like, I don't know who you are. I've never heard of this. Why would I talk to you? I'll, you know, I'm going to talk to this other podcast or I'm going to talk to this other magazine. Like, why would I speak to you about the work that I'm doing? And so I kind of, in those early days, it was tough. I really wanted to give up in those early days a lot because not only was I not getting the support from other black designers, mm-hmm. I just wasn't getting support from the design community period. I had reached out to other design podcasters that I knew to try to trade guests or say, hey, if you're looking for more diversity in your guests, I've talked to these people. I can introduce you. And they're like, yeah, we don't really talk about race. We don't really go into that. So that's not really a thing that we're going to do. Or, or you know, sometimes the messages would be just a lot nastier than that. I would often oh. get accused of being a racist all the time. Yeah, it's just a racist side project. Why are you only talking to black people? Well, why are you only talking to white people? You know, and then you flip it on them and then they never respond. So, yeah. And, and when I look back at it, I know what I was trying to do. I was trying to take this thing and put it in front of an audience that honestly wasn't ready for it. 
you were ahead of your time, but at the same time, you, you built a platform and then you started stocking it with this incredibly nutrient dense archive and you were growing it, you know, it gestated and grew in the garden, you know, and now it's in full bloom. The big change came for me probably in 2015. In 2015, I had started to get involved with this with this professional organization, AIGA. So I was doing some volunteer work with them on their diversity okay. and inclusion task force. Um, and I had put together this presentation that I was going to present at South by Southwest called Where Are the Black Designers? And I did that in conjunction with AIGA. They certainly helped out with the research. They helped out with the funds for me to get to South by Southwest to even make it like happen. And I remember giving that speech to a room of about 15 people, maybe 20. Like it was an empty room. <laughs> it was an empty room. Wow. I mean, the rooms at South by where they have these talks can easily seat like about 200 people. And my room felt like the room that you ducked into at the end of the day to charge your phone. I'm speaking to like a anemic crowd of <laughs> folks, just like not a lot of people there. Uh, and thinking like, what am, what am I doing? Like, what am I trying? What am I proving with this? You know, sort of having another come to Jesus talk with myself. Like, what are you doing? What is, what is this? Now, there were people in that room who thankfully I still actually keep in touch with to this day because these were people that were from like Facebook and from Pinterest and from other companies and stuff that kind of saw the value of what it was that I was trying to do and what I was trying to put forth. It was sort of at that time, particularly at South by Southwest, I got invited to the Facebook house that they had there and got to meet some people that were there and talk to folks. And it suddenly dawned on me, like, I just need to run like my own race. Like, I just need to stay in my own lane, like very similar to when I was in college and figuring out I need to just focus on my stuff. I need to focus on whatever the, the end goal is and just keep doing that and not get distracted by trying to make this a thing for everyone and just make it the best that I can for the audience that I have. The power of this moment is understanding the things that are broken, naming them, being really clear about it. And that's part of what's happening right now. We're naming systems of injustice. We're naming systems that are linear and don't have resilience. Uh, we're naming systems that um, serve the few and not the many. And by naming them, we identify what we can and must change about them. The reason this is such an exciting time to do this work, and that to back to where we started in the beginning, is that everything has to change. There's never been a better time to be a designer, and I don't mean that just like an architect, a designer. I mean the kind of person who's a problem solver in whatever field you are working in. Uh, if you bring that kind of perspective around design being an approach to solving problems, to sort of identifying and seeing where you can redirect, where the revolutionary moment is not a radical break, but a kind of shifting. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, a, it, it's not an ahistorical uh, moment, but also one that says we cannot continue to have systems of oppression and make of our species a kind of destroyer of the world. That would be the great tragedy. And I don't think we will do that. I think humans are really, really wickedly smart and creative um, when they want to be. And uh, it's a time for that. And on that note, 
Here's to powerful healing and uplifting positive change in 2021 and beyond. We have a great episode for you next week, our last one of the year. After that, 2020 will be nothing but hindsight. Cheers, everyone. Hey, thanks for listening. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. We love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Laura Jaramillo, and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.